Chapter 19, Part 1 of 40,000 Miles Over Land and Water. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. 40,000 Miles Over Land and Water by Ethel Gwendolyn Vincent. Gwalior and Rajputana. Part 1. Friday, January 30th. Left Agra at 7.30 on our way to Gwalior. After crossing the Chumbla on one of the finest bridges in India, we came to a very strange bit of country. Every foot of the bare ground was gulched, upturned, upheaved into conical mounds. We saw a quantity of curious little sugar-loaf cones, apparently of natural origin, and the whole represents a series of miniature valleys and mountains. This broken ground alone would form a formidable obstacle to the enemy's approach to Gwalior without its celebrated fort. Long before we reached Gwalior, we saw the great bridge of rock some two miles in length, though only one in width, which rises up out of the plain. It is the Gibraltar of India, and standing out of the plain instead of out of the sea, was called, before modern cannon brought the fort within range of neighboring heights, the key of Hindustan. It is a great rampart of nature, and the range of fortress walls which crown the summit well become the site. They frown down upon the palace of Cynthia himself, lying immediately underneath in mockery guarding his territory. For though the Maharaja's standard floats from the flagstaff, British soldiers occupy the stronghold. Sir Lepel Griffin, the Governor-General's agent to the Princes of Central India, was on his annual tour and in camp at Morar, the adjacent military station. He had asked us to stay with him at Indore, Holkar's capital, where he is permanently located, and now offered us the hospitality of his camp but all our ideas of having to rough it melted before the oriental luxury of the temporary town we drove through a neat street of tents and were set down before a handsome pavilion this was the entrance hall with visitors book and where the scarlet-clad chuparasis are in constant attendance through this we passed into a drawing-room lined with brocade thickly carpeted rugs, full of easy chairs and of tables covered with photographs, books, newspapers, flowers, etc. An anteroom, again, leads into the dining room. The tents for the remainder of the party are ranged on either side of the pavilion. Here we are in far greater luxury than in any Indian hotel, and save for the supporting pole in the centre and the pebbles crunching under the carpet, we might think ourselves in a comfortable room. All around there are the cheerful sounds of camp life, the chattering of servants, the stamping of picketed horses, or the whistling proceeding from your opposite neighbor's tent. Some officers of the regiment are playing polo in the adjoining ground, and their horses' feet resound as they scamper about on the hard earth. All commissioners and collectors have to camp out for one or two months in the year on their tours of inspection, and so it comes to be quite a feature of Indian life. The rule, then, is for one set of tents to be set on in advance overnight. The revere 
is sounded at 5 a.m. or some such early hour, and the ten miles' march is accomplished before the heat of the day, and they sit down to breakfast on the new camping ground, with the tents ready pitched. Not the least wonderful part of the camp is the kitchen. Everything is cooked out in the open, and there is but one tent for the culinary department. There are one or two mud ovens and holes in the ground filled with charcoal, and with this and a very few pots and pans, a native cook manages to turn out a most elegant dinner for eighteen. Rarely, if ever, are the dishes or sauces smoked, even when a contrary wind is blowing. We went to a small tennis party in the evening and returned home along the mall. Sir Lepo stopped and took us into the club, where there is one room set aside for the use of the ladies. It is a popular institution and prevails at many of the stations. The ladies walk down here in the evening before dinner and have a gossip or read the papers whilst their husbands are playing billiards in an adjoining room. This reminds me also of another but very different kind of club, the Mutton Club, which exists at most stations. There are few butchers in India, as none are called for among the Hindu population. So the ladies on a station frequently join together and keep their own flock of sheep and a shepherd, which supplies them with meat twice a week, and they take it in turns for the prime joints. Some energetic member of the community keeps the accounts and collects the subscriptions. There was a dinner party in the evening, and during dinner the band of Native Infantry Regiment, the Duke of Connaught's own, played outside the tent, and afterwards conjurers performed some well-known Indian tricks. It strikes you as curious at first when you step out of your tent into the moonlight in full evening dress and walk across the pavilion to dinner to see the guests arriving up the street, which looks so pretty with its row of lamps. Saturday, January 31st. In camp at Grelior, awoke at 7 a.m. to the merry noises of an awakening camp. Bugles braying, horses neighing, a band playing in the distance, soldiers parading on the plain nearby under their officers' shouts of command, and gongs sounding at intervals from all sides. It was very chilly work turning out, for in the early morning and late at night the cold in the tents is intense. At eight o'clock we started, muffled up in winter wraps, yet shivering much, and drove to the bottom of the Gwalior Hill. Here we found one of the Majoraha's elephants waiting to take us up the very steep climb to the fort, which is impossible to ascend in a carriage. Those who have been on an elephant know well the first sensation of fright that comes with the acute angle as the beast raises himself on his hind legs, when his forelegs bring us to a level, and then we seem to be on a height which is dwarfing to all below us. The motion is a painful, uneven one, to which you never seem able to find a corresponding one for your body, and the howdah becomes anything but a comfortable seat, however pleased you may be at first with the novelty of the situation. I think the mahout, with his two-pronged fork, sitting astride the elephant's neck and guiding him by the pressure of his knees under the flopping ears, has the more comfortable position of the two.
The little fairy, as the elephant was poetically and inappropriately termed, was very slow, and our progress proportionally tedious. Our party must have presented a very picturesque appearance, as perched aloft on the red and yellow trappings of the howdah, our bell sounding out melodiously with the swaying walk of the elephant, we wound up under the walls of the old fort. The strength of the position is marvellous, and we do not wonder that the chiefs of India would hardly believe when told that it had fallen into our hands a little more than a century ago. We passed through two gateways, and then were beneath the castellated walls, where under the protection of each battlement is a row of glazed tiles of bright colours, in blue and green. One wonders how the decoration, so strangely out of place, ever came there, and in other parts of the fort it appears again. In one place, yellow geese are represented by these means, walking in single file along the length of a wall. The whole of this narrow ridge is taken up with cantonments and barracks laid in parallel lines on its perfectly flat surface. It is so narrow that passing along the road in the center, you can almost see down on to the plain immediately below on either hand. One beautiful bit of antiquity still remains inside the fort in a wonderful Hindu temple, surrounded by a museum of ancient outdoor monuments, stone mummies, Jain idols, and monstrosities of hydra-headed beasts, looking at each other from over a pillar. The temple is very high, square, and narrow, a peculiar kind of formation, and unlike most Hindu temples, which taper towards the top. It is built of small stones, which seem to form Gothic arches in out-of-the-way corners, and the whole temple presents an intricate mass of irregularities. To finish all, it is covered in at the top by a modern addition, a huge white stone semicircular roof, ending squarely and looking entirely like a huge sarcophagus. As we passed the parade ground, we saw the general reviewing a body of troops, the tramp of their feet, and their regular lines, with bayonets gleaming in the morning sun, was a cheerful sight. The views from the fort are magnificent. There is old Gwalior lying away among its sprinkling of trees, with the open space where the large square of buildings shows the Maharaja's palace and gardens. The mud huts of the large village of Lashkar, the city proper of Gwalior, is at our feet, and away to the left is the defile of the Urwai Gorge, whose summit, on a level with the fort, is the only weak point in the defences. We had breakfast on returning at eleven o'clock, a very usual hour when Chota Hazri supplies all earlier wants, and from 12 p.m. a string of callers were coming and going. The Indian etiquette requires calls to be paid between the hottest hours of the day, from 12 till 2 p.m. A combat of animals had been organized for that afternoon for us. The natives squatting round formed a bright ring of color, and somewhat against our will we were obliged to witness a typical Indian entertainment. Some cocks were the first to appear on the arena, but, save one couple, were not at all game. Then some little partridges were brought, loudly calling challenges to each other from their wicker cages, 
but when brought face to face, they only showed us a succession of clever dodgings. They were followed by a pair of bulbuls, those fluffy-headed bullfinches whom we hear chirping in the trees in the evening with such a deafening noise. But the rams showed the best fight. Let fly from opposite ends of the circle, they met in the center with tremendous force, the repeated dull thud of their horns echoing for days after in our ears. Provided that they meet with their heads well down, it is their horns that have the full force of the concussion, and it does not hurt them. A white ram was produced, which was held back with difficulty, springing and showing fight to all the rams that came near him. He proved too strong and heavy for all the others, and they fled in terror before him, and could hardly be persuaded to meet him. Then he would take a mean advantage of their retreat, and go after them, butting at their backs and sides, and turning them contemptuously over. We saw a snake pitted against a mongoose, but, curiously enough, little fury as the mongoose is, he refused to touch the very handsome spotted snake, and retreated at every hiss. The second and smaller one, however, he succeeded in apparently killing, flattening his neck till blood poured out of his mouth. This was the signal for a wonderful exhibition. The man declared he could bring the snake to life again, and, making a hole in the earth, he laid the head in and poured water on it. The effect was magical. The neck stiffened and moved, and gradually the serpent reared its head. Then the cure was completed by the sweet dirge-like music, charming the snake, and making it wave its head in time, intently following each undulation, unconscious of all save the magic music. A buffalo fight was tried in another part of the camp, but it was evident that they, in common with the other animals, had no natural animosity for one another. Later in the afternoon we went to the cantonment to see some tent-pegging by the 4th Bengal Native Cavalry. This was a very different kind of tent-pegging to any performance of the kind you would see at the Agricultural Hall at Islington. Here the men were on a large open space and flew by at full speed with a wild rush, balancing the long spear low and carrying off the tiny peg, almost lost in such a space, by piercing it through. The dress of the native cavalry is splendid, scarlet coats, or more crimson perhaps, with blue and white striped turbans, while that of the infantry is buff with dark blue turbans and facings. We walked through the cavalry lines of horse pickets, and the horses of this regiment are exceptionally fine, either country-bred or Australians. Each man is obliged to keep a grass-cutter for his horse, and a pony or mule is shared by two, which goes out early in the morning and returns to camp at night with the next day's load of grass. We drove home through the bazaar, which is considered almost the model bazaar of India. It is hardly credible what order and brightness by whitewashing and a uniformity of red-striped blinds has been introduced by the encouragement of Brigadier General Massey of Crimean fame when he commanded here. A great deal of the native-carved woodwork has been used with great effect in balconies and over gateways, particularly in that of the Serai, or the house of hospitality for native travellers, which you find in all villages. 
we drove out to dinner by moonlight that evening in an open carriage the usual way at mofussil stations where a close carriage is so rarely wanted the word mofussil sounded so funny to me at first but it is very expressive of the station and up-country life of india sunday february first to church in the morning the scarlet of the infantry in the nave and the blue of the artillery lining the transepts made a very effective addition to the congregation the choir was formed of soldiers and accompanied by a brass band captain robertson first assistant to the agent showed us to-day a carita or a letter to a native prince the paper is specially made for this purpose and is sprinkled with gold leaf only the last few lines of the somewhat lengthy document contain the purport of the letter while the remainder is made up of the usual roundabout and complimentary phrases it is folded in a peculiar way with the flaps outwards and inserted into a muslin bag and this latter into one of crimson and gold tint with a slipknot of gold thread attached to which is a ponderous seal the superscription and address on a slip of paper is passed into the bag between this latter and the muslin one i have given these details in full because they are important to indian epistolary art as should any of them be admitted it would be thought an insult had been offered to the person addressed it may not be generally known that the native states still extant in india are eight hundred though out of them only two hundred are of any importance the nizam of hyderabad the maharajas of sindhai and holkar each have an income of over a million sterling a year and the kingdom of that first named is as large as italy this gives us some idea of the importance and power which still remains in the hands of the native princes added to which many of them maintain their own army consisting of several regiments this is the maharaja sindhai's great pride the strength and efficacy of his army and we were so sorry to have come a few days too late to see the review which he had just held when he commanded his troops in person and also to have missed the durbar where his highness was received in state by sir lapel since then he has been laid up with fever and we were therefore unable to see him or his palace which contains one of the finest durbar halls in india we left the camp at daybreak the next morning and this will ever be remembered as the coldest and most disagreeable of our many early morning starts collecting our things and leaving as we did in the dark we returned to agra for the third and last time where we spent the night again all the next day we were travelling on the rajputana state railway to jepur which we reached at six in the evening the country around Jaipur is of that peculiar formation which presents a flat plain of untold limits, interrupted at frequent intervals by conical-shaped hills that often attain to the height of mountains. Surrounded by a semicircle of these mountains, lying in the hollow of their midst, is Jaipur. The white walls and towers of the great tiger fort, accessible only from this one side, stands guard over the city. 
beneath it on the rocks has been painted in giant letters the one word welcome inscribed there for the visit of the prince of wales jaipur the city of victory as its name implies is considered the model city of a native state and it also carries off the palm for picturesqueness amongst all those artist-loved cities of india the native quarter surrounded by a wall forms a city within the city the broad streets of its bazaar are wider and different to anything of the kind that we have seen before the low shops are surmounted by a trellis carving uniform throughout the long street and all are colored that soft eastern pink deep enough here to be a terracotta color the square marketplace with its marble fountain in the centre and flocks of pigeons looks like some old italian piazza and the story is told that it was built to please the italian love of one of the maharajas of jaipur in keeping with the cleanliness and the air of brightness that generally pervades jaipur are the painted horns in red and green of the bullocks the spirited and caparisoned horses of the maharajah's attendants and messengers and the bullock cart and smartly curtained ekkas with their magnificent yokes of trotting bullocks a more than ordinarily large number of sacred bulls seem to be lying or wandering about the streets there is the unusual sight of familiar rows of lamp-posts once more for jaipur is the only city of a native state that is lighted with gas and presently we pass the smoking chimney of his highness the maharaja's gas works as the inscription over the gate tells us it is the late maharaja who has made jaipur to what it is jaipur seems to be more advanced in art education and culture looking at its school of art where the native manufactures of pottery are sold the public library in the square and the museum this latter is formed by the specimens of native manufactures such as kinkab benares and morshabad work multan and other potteries exhibited at the jaipur exhibition two years ago and which owes its origin and tasteful arrangement chiefly to dr hendley the civil surgeon at the end of a long street is the palace of the moon which is attractive from its name but not from anything in its interior there are the usual ranges of courtyards and the two durbar halls gaudy in the extreme of a glaring mural decoration of flowers and fruit we were taken to the bottom of the garden which commands a fine view of the tiger fort and were rather disgusted to find it was only to see a billiard-room in the pavilion the zenana a palace in buff and blue in the form of a roof of terraces ascending and diminishing towards the gold moon at the summit is the prettiest thing about the palace of the moon adjoining is the large courtyard with the tower in the centre round which the maharaja's three hundred horses are stabled facing the palace at the other end of the long street is a cage where seven magnificent tigers are kept for the amusement of the public bars not as thick as the little finger are alone between us and these ferocious animals they crouch and glower in the furthermost corner and then spring forward as the keeper approaches 
with a wild roar that re-echoes down the street, making the cage quiver with its reverberation. The grandest tiger of all alone has double bars, having once broken two with a forward spring. Then we drove to the Palace of the Winds, a charmingly poetic name in keeping and resembling the fantastic façade in pink and white. A series of little turrets with trellis-work windows filled in with green gratings allow of the wind passing freely through. The palace ends with a succession of steps, each one being crowned with a flag on a golden staff, till they meet in the crowning step, the keystone of the façade. It stands at the top of a hill and is used as a summer residence. There is nothing to see inside. The whole idea has been exhausted on the exterior. End of chapter 19, part 1